Well, that's cool. Right? Hello and welcome to another episode of the Well That's Cool podcast. I'm the host of the show, Ben Fast. One of the things about this podcast's origin was I didn't really know what it was going to become. I started the show as a way to talk with cool people doing cool things during the pandemic. As the fall and winter of 2020 came around, things naturally evolved into a Zoom book club, a monthly chance for me to talk with authors, poets, and people working in the literary sphere. I hosted five club meetings and was very happy to have a small but mighty regular virtual audience join me, making the episode recordings both a fun time with friends and a cool way to keep the podcast going. As we're heading towards one year living with this pandemic, and one year since I started this podcast, and with the temperature rising and people starting to find ways to live a bit more normally again, at least here in Edmonton, I've started thinking about wrapping up season one and taking a break from the Well That's Cool idea. We've had some great book club meetings, and they were, I hope, a useful and fulfilling activity for both the attendees and you listeners during the dark winter months. To wrap up season one, I decided to have one more conversation with an author, this time with someone who spends his time satirizing my very family history. If you listen to some of my earlier episodes, you'll know I spent a few weeks in 2019 traveling to Scotland to find out more about my mum's side of the family tree. Well, part of my dad's side are Mennonites, coming to Canada most recently from the Ukraine, or what was then the Russian Empire, and going further back through Prussia and the Netherlands. I was also raised attending a Mennonite church, and I have many Mennonite friends across Canada and the US, so it's been an important identifier for me growing up, maybe even more ingrained than my interest in and connection with Scottish history that started a few years ago. For my guest this time, Andrew Unger, author of Once Removed and the man behind the website The Daily Bonnet, satirizing Mennonites comes from a deep family and personal connection to the Mennonite experience as well. His writing features more Mennonite references than I can catch. His subjects cover all aspects of Mennonite life through the ages and into today. Using that Mennonite history and culture that shaped his perspective of the world as a lens to look back on Mennonites and look at the outside world provides him with ample material to draw on, and a great opportunity to share a chuckle with Mennonites, and everyone else, along the way. Since most of Andrew's work revolves around Mennonite culture and history, I asked him if he could start by explaining just what a Mennonite is anyways. Oh boy, I don't know if that, <laughs> I don't know if that's, I think you would ask 10 different Mennonites and you'd get 10 different answers. Um, but, um, you know, Basically, it's it's a, a you know religious group that started in after the Protestant Reformation um, that distinguished itself from other Protestants by uh, pacifism and adult baptism and so on, and because they were persecuted because of those beliefs in Europe 500 years ago, uh, some Mennonite groups sort of traveled together, lived together, moved to other countries and developed, I guess you could say, kind of a um, ethnicity of sorts. And so, uh, but that's, you know, that's a debatable contentious point among Mennonites as to whether it constitutes uh, a, a, a church only or whether the term can refer to uh, ethnicity. So, in you know, like you said, surnames, right? 
you know, we don't talk about like say Lutheran surnames or Catholic surnames, but you might talk about Mennonite surnames. So it's like this complicated, complicated thing. Um, but I guess that's as simply as I can put it, but <laughs> there's far more nuances to it than that little intro. Yeah, so Mennonites uh, that I'm descended from first arrived in, in Canada or in Manitoba in the 1870s. Uh, they had originated in the Netherlands in the 1500s, and then because of persecution, they moved to Prussia, and then because of various reasons, they moved to Russia, or what later became the Soviet Union. Uh, and in the 1870s, they became, started to be sort of dissatisfied with living in, in Russia. I think they felt some of their rights, especially, usually they moved because the government was going to make them join the military. That's almost always why they moved to different places. And so uh, in the 1870s, uh, Canada was looking for farmers and the Mennonites of Russia were looking for a new place to live. And so they um, recruited Mennonites, I guess you could say, to, uh, to move to Manitoba. So the first place in Western Canada that they moved was Manitoba. But then later, uh, I don't know if it was too long after that, they basically spread across the Canadian prairies and um, like, you know, Abbotsford, that part of British Columbia as well. And uh, Mennonites today, um, and we'll get into sort of the history of it, but but would you notice a Mennonite walking down the street? Is there something that stands out about Mennonites? Do we look particularly Mennonite? I don't know. Is that something <laughs> that you could pick out necessarily? Yeah, well, some for sure you could. I mean, some people you could, right? So some Mennonites, I mean, that's the thing that is maybe sort of confusing for people is, Mennonites are literally as diverse as the rest of the population, uh, culturally diverse and 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 theologically diverse, from very conservative to very progressive and everything in between. And so you'll have, yeah, there are Mennonites, especially in Southern Ontario and so on, uh, that dress, you know, horse and buggy. And that's usually probably the picture that people have in their head. Uh, women in long dresses and kerchiefs and suspenders and all that kind of stuff. But um, the vast majority of the Mennonites in, in Western Canada, not all, there are some plain clothes Mennonites in Western Canada too, but, but for the most part, um, you, they would be in, you wouldn't know, you wouldn't be able to identify one by looking. <laughs> yeah. I can, I can say that you and I look just like the, uh, the average Joe on the street, I think. I was just going to say the average uh, corny on the street or the average, <laughs> That's like a you know Abe on the street. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that that sort of gives us an idea of at least the the group of people that we're going to talk about today. Um, ones that maybe you and I are a little bit more familiar with, but ones that um, I think a lot of people have that maybe that specific idea of and maybe don't understand both the intricacies historically or who Mennonites are today. Um, so I think we'll get into that a little bit later on as we're talking about your book. But uh, but that's the basis of a lot of the writing that you're doing. Um, and I want to start with the Daily Bonnet, which you know is a throwback to maybe the Mennonites and their clothing of old or even today. And a lot of people may recognize the style of satirical news sort of writing that we see in the Daily Bonnet, which is a satirical news website, as sort of the Mennonite version of the onion, if that's fair to say. Why did you decide to poke fun at the world through this sort of specific Mennonite lens with very specific humor that maybe a lot of people might not get those references to and that really comes through with those sort of stereotypes of Mennonite history names and experiences as we've just talked about 
Yeah, you know, in some ways, the website kind of started by accident. I don't know if anyone would would really, you know, have in their head, hey, you know what, what the world needs is a Mennonite version of the onion or something. You know, I, I started, I had written something, um, one satirical article about the Steinbeck City Council and just poking fun at them. And it was in the style of the onion. And, and I posted it on my own, my own blog, my own, you know, website. And usually things that I read, just a handful of, you know, just hundred people maybe read them or something. And suddenly this particular post, because I wrote it in the sort of onion style article, um, I woke up the next morning and thousands of people had read it. So I figured, oh, wow, okay. Uh, I guess I could write more of these. And so it sort of started by accident without really any intent to, you know, I'm, you know, to look at the world through a Mennonite lens or to write Mennonite satire or whatever. It just sort of started by accident and, and I've sort of just kept doing it ever since then. But that was in 2016. But, um, you know, I think what what's interesting or what works for Mennonite satire is there are so many different aspects and definitions of what it means to be, be a Mennonite. So one day you can make a joke about uh, food or an accent uh, or, uh, or church or politics or whatever. I mean, there's so many different things that, that and, and the other thing I think is that people, even you know, non-Mennonites sort of find Mennonites to be quirky, I guess, to put it definitely distinct or different. And so those are sorts of things that that are great fodder for for humor. So although the website kind of started by accident, uh, I think just the nature of the Mennonite church and culture and so on is a good source of humor. Hmm. Are Mennonites inherently funny in that sort of quirky sense that you mentioned? Or is it the is it just simply the way that you poke fun at them that makes them funny? I think both. Um, you know, Mennonites, you know, do have a sense of humor and it's kind of, you know, kind of an, I'd say, earthy sense of humor. But at the same time, uh, I was reading um, a family history book that my great uncle wrote about my own, you know, there's many different branches of Mennonites and some Mennonite branches were very much against humor and laughter. And, uh, you know, life is serious and life is hard and you should be serious all the time. So the actual, my family in particular, if we go back two or three generations would would have been you know, they almost thought laughing was a sin. And now not, not all Mennonites are like that, but my ancestors were, if you go back a hundred years ago. So, um, and that's, you know, in that way, I guess I'm breaking new ground in, in amongst my family, but, but there are other Mennonites and, and there are many, there are actually Mennonite, I, I don't know about satirists, but there've been Mennonite authors and so on who've written funny books about Mennonites, you know, at least since the 1980s and probably earlier than that. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of references that Mennonites would get as they look at your humor, whether they've experienced that, you know, in their family history or not, they're going to get the references to the clothing, to the food, to the names, to the accents, that sort of thing. What can non-Mennonites get out of it if they don't have an Aunt Martha or a Thiessen branch in their family? Is there enough that they recognize it as, as Mennonites 
Or is it just simply the satire that they're getting? Yeah, you know, I don't think every person is going to get every joke. In fact, sometimes, um, sometimes I'll look at an article that I posted a year or two or three ago, and it'll come up again. And it might have been referring to something that happened in the news that exact week. And I'll look at it and I'll go, I don't even, what was this even talking? I don't even get, it. I don't even get the joke of an article that I wrote. So not everyone's going to get every joke, but I do think that, uh, and I do have quite a few non Mennonite readers. And, you know, I think there's some things about living in small towns, rural areas, farming, uh, the Canadian prairies, or uh, even other similar religious groups, uh, you know, like probably some of the jokes, you could just replace the word Mennonite with Baptist and it almost would, you know, I think they're just as uh, keen on dancing as the Mennonites are. <laughs> or card playing, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a whole other satirical branch, that's for sure. Um, some of your stories, like the recent Valentine's one, the seven hottest Mennonite sex positions, may not appear at first glance like a typical story the church elders would want the flock reading or that you know you'd share around the sunday school table how has the website been received by the very people that you're writing about and that are probably going to be reading it um i would say for the most part it's been received positively i think you know at first people didn't know who i was what 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 i was up to why i was doing this was an anti-Mennonite, you know, people, I don't know, within the first few months or whatever, they, they don't know even who's writing these articles, right? So, but as, as the website has been around longer and stuff, I think people realize I'm not anti-Mennonite, I'm not out to uh, mock the Mennonites really in that sense. But, um, but, you know, there are people I'm sure that don't like it. I know that there are, uh, but even, even, uh, but then it's also so, sometimes surprising who likes it that you might think wouldn't. Like I actually have had, not on that article that you mentioned, but I actually have had Mennonite pastors send me messages on Facebook saying, um, you know, thanks for that article that you wrote. I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that uh, at, at, in church, but I can't, but thanks for writing the article. Now I'm not suggesting everyone shares those views but um i you know i have had those emails or or even um members of the hutterite community who i on to be honest i didn't even know that they were on facebook or on the internet and i've had emails um from uh a hutterite teacher in a hutterite colony saying that they use the articles in class and stuff like that so sometimes the fans or the the people reading it are uh unexpected but i have had criticism too of course but um uh you know i could say it's a mixed reaction <laughs> yeah how do you go about picking the stories that you do is there anything that you look for in particular in a new story that comes out or that you want to cover from the mennonite side of things how do you go about creating those yeah there's a few different thing you know aspects so one would be the just you're looking at some quirk or or uniqueness or whatever uh that Mennonites have and then you come up with the article come up with the headline for there so I have a list of ideas but they're not fully fledged headlines they might just be 
crokinole, you know, it's very popular. I was going to say sport, popular game with, with Mennonites, uh, crokinole, right? Or Dutch Blitz, right? So I might just write down Dutch Blitz. And then the headline, then I'll come up with a headline later. So there's those type. And then there's, and then there's times when something is happening in the news that everyone's, you know, sort of talking about. Like, I think there was about a four or five month period there where almost every day, I think I was writing about pandemic stuff. Mm -hmm. every, you know, everything from, you know, the, the restriction, household restrictions, you know, the freezings can't all fit in their own house at one time because there's a five person limit and there's like 20 of them or whatever, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but so you respond to what's happening in the news uh, is another sort of place to come up with ideas. But um, yeah, I think it's just observation and, uh, you know, observation, not only of my own culture and community and whatever, but also of just paying attention to the news and then thinking, okay, what's the Mennonite twist I can put on whatever everyone else else is uh, talking about yeah and I, i'm just looking at the the homepage right now um you know two of your three most recent ones are about piping in fake crowd noise into a mennonite church which is you know sort of a reference to the sports events that are happening nowadays and also one about a mennonite church holding a lottery to see who can attend church this week but there's also ones that reference you know just general pop culture, common knowledge stuff about, you know, a Hamilton knockoff. There seems to be such a wide variety of stories. Is there anything that you have to avoid when you end up writing these satirical stories? Yeah, you know, there are, and, and I don't know if it's, it's, if it's topics. Well, there are, I could probably think of some topics that would be off limits, I guess. But, but I think it's not so much the topics to avoid, but it's rather that you want to have the right tone. You don't want people to uh, mis misunderstand what you're saying or take what you're saying in the wrong way or or uh, perceive that you're uh, poking fun at somebody you shouldn't poke fun at or whatever, that sort of thing. So um, I wouldn't say that so much that topics to avoid, but rather sometimes I struggle with or, or, or try to make sure, and I, I don't always succeed, but I try to anyways, um, making sure the tone is right, that I have the right headline that conveys and the content of the article that conveys what I, you know, what I'm trying to communicate with it. That it's not mocking, like you said earlier. Yeah, yeah, is exactly. It, there is a difference between poking fun and mocking. What would that difference be? How would you explain that? I'm not sure if I can completely articulate what the difference would be other than that the person that it's poking fun at is okay with it. You know, that, that, that someone could read it and go, ha ha, you know, that's, that's the way I am, or that's the way we are or whatever. Uh, whereas the mocking is sort of feels like it's an outside thing. And it's like, I'm better than you sort of as a, I'm better than you kind of tone to it. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas the poking fun is kind of like, how, this is the way we all are or whatever, you know? So um, I think it's, you can read it, you can see it, you can read it in the tone. I think you can see when someone is mocking versus when someone's poking fun or, or satirizing. One of the reasons I ask you sort of to explain it is that you 
are actually a teacher or you have been a teacher and have taught satire as an English teacher. So what brought you to that form of humor? What, what made satire of interest to you as an English teacher? Yeah. So I taught and I have been teaching, you know, uh, in my grade 12 class, uh, satire for 15, 16 years and probably, you know, 12 years or, or, or 10 years or whatever before I ever started the Daily Bonnet. And I never really, as I said before, as the website kind of started by accident. So it wasn't really, I'm not, I'm not sure how much one had an impact on the other, but certainly the fact that I was thinking about satire and teaching it, and I was very familiar with it. I had read a lot of it. And so I think that definitely sort of had, a, had a, an impact in sort of preparing me to be able to write it and write it consistently, uh, you know, for the past five years, um, it definitely had an impact. Yeah. You describe it on your website, and I like how you use this phrasing that um, satire is something that develops your creative writing and your critical thinking skills. How has that worked out? How does that work out for students who are learning creative writing and critical thinking at the same time? And if you check out my website, and I don't mean the Daily Bonnet, but andrewunger.com, there's there's a whole section on teaching satire. So I don't know if any listeners are teachers, but if you're interested in teaching satire, there's a whole bunch of resources there. Uh, and uh, just as you mentioned, and I think um, one of the things when you're when you're writing satire is you have to think of different layers and levels at the same time. So not only do you have the literal words but then there's this other meaning you're actually meaning the opposite of what you're saying so it's a it's an extra challenge beyond say just say writing a short story or something where you it might be fairly literal uh whereas writing writing satire um you have to kind of get your head around that you're writing a character you don't really mean what you say whatever you're trying to say you're really saying the opposite of so there's that element in, in creative writing, which I think anyone that's a teacher should, you know, an, an English teacher, a creative writing teacher should, you know, get, get your students to write satire because it really stretches those creative uh, juices. And then the other thing is just reading satire and being able to recognize it because of course there's the, there's the literacy issue of people sometimes reading a satirical article and thinking it's real, you know, um, especially if they're in the format of you know fake news style satire or whatever yeah. so that's a whole critical element or critical thinking element right there it's just the literacy of by writing it you're going to more easily be able to identify it right if you've written it in the past it's less likely you're going to be fooled by fake news and by that i mean the deceptive fake news which satire isn't and also even you know by satire you're not going to think it's real if you're familiar with it, you've read it, you've written it, and so on. So I think there's the creative element, but also just the sort of citizenship, critical thinking element is also uh, important. Do your students like writing it and learning about it? Is it a popular unit? I, I think so. I, I would say so. I would say, uh, yeah, I think so. Um, it's a challenge. So, that you know, it's usually something, you know, the, it's not something they would have done as often as an essay or a regular short story or something. They, they maybe only do it once ever, right? So it's a little bit more of a challenge, but that's maybe part of the appeal. It's unique and fun and it's funny. The humor element is always 
um, appealing. So yeah, I think they enjoy it. What do you what do you encourage them to do? What are the tips that you give them, or the tips that you would give a new up and coming satirist to really focus on improving that side of their craft? Well, you know, one thing I think that works with the Daily Bonnet and could be applied to other people as well is if you kind of have that um, niche topic, you know, so, you know, it, it's not too difficult for me to come up with ideas because I have this lens. Okay, I, it's a Mennonite lens. Whether it's, if your lens is completely open-ended, um, then it might be a little daunting to be like, what am I going to satirize and how? Whereas if, if you say, okay, you know, your, your lens is you're going to write hockey satire, you're going to write satire about, uh, you know, pop musicians or whatever, you know, sort of narrowing the focus a little bit, at least at first, um, helps to kind of, now you can, now you can go to the news and you can go, okay, what's the twist I can put on this that comes from this particular lens. And then the other thing that I, I like to compare it to is, is acting. Not that I'm an actor, I, I'm not really an actor, but but in, in a lot of sense, writing is like acting and, and especially when you're writing satire because you, know, you are now becoming this character. This isn't you, you are this character and now you're, you know, you're gonna say what they're gonna say, but you're gonna make it funny, you're gonna exaggerate. But I think that putting your head in the, you know, the same process that a, uh, that, that a method actor might, maybe not as extreme as a method actor, but the same process that an actor might do um, is the process you use when you're writing satire is just put yourself in the head of that other person. And then of course, in satire, you're gonna make that other person look silly, but still. <laughs> yeah, go a little bit over the top with it in so, so yeah. many ways. Yeah. So we've talked about the Daily Bonnet and about satire in general. Uh, I think it's a great time to talk about your new novel, Once Removed, which is published was published in September by Turnstone Press. Um, do you want to give us a little taste of that right now, and then we'll talk a little bit about it after that? Sure. Yeah, I'll read a little, a little uh, section here. So in this, so the book is about um, uh, Timothy Hepner. He works in a, uh, he, he lives in a small town where he works for a, the town's Parks and Rec department, and they have a very aggressive mayor who's basically destroying all the historic buildings. And he sort of feels conflicted about this. He also is involved um, as a ghost writer, writing family histories and gene genealogies, and he's writing a local, um, a local history book. And so th those two things kind of come into conflict. Uh, I always tell people it's you know, eighty percent a comedy and twenty percent. You know, it's not hundred percent comedy. There's element. There's serious scenes. There's sad. There's other emotions besides laughter in here. But I'll just read this section where uh, Timothy has been taken, uh, the mayor has sort of gravitated towards his leached, latched onto, that's probably the best word, latched onto his project of writing a, a, a town a history book and has taken him to the print shop where they're going to print up copies mm -hmm. uh, of this book. So I'll just read that uh, section here. A few days later, I threw on a pair of rubber boots and splashed my way through the puddles to meet BLT, that's the mayor, at the place where they print the books around here, Corny's print shop. Corny himself is long dead, but the name is so iconic in these parts that Edenfelders refer to anyone that works there as one of Corny's children. 
VLT was standing at the corner when I arrived chatting with a young woman, one of Corny's children, who, whose painful grimace made it all too clear to anyone other than our esteemed mayor that she would have preferred that he sat down on that chair over there and kept quiet rather than pontificate in great detail about the mill rate. The bell above the door chimed when I entered and they both turned around to greet me. Timothy, you have some decisions to make. He took me through a door that was marked staff only. The girl looked hesitant, but since he was the mayor and owned the building where Corny's print shop was located, she let him through. The most important thing about plastic, uh, <laughs> ruined that there, <laughs> messed that up. <laughs> the most important thing about book publishing, he said, is selecting your plastic spiral binding. What color do you want? I was shown a long row of every color in the admittedly limited Mennonite rainbow and selected a black spiral because I figured it would draw the least attention. I didn't think people should be focusing so much on the binding and should instead be trying to get what they could from the text. The black one is fine, I said. BLT scoffed. It's fine all you want out of life, Timothy. He vetoed my selection. He had that power. It was written in the local constitution or something. It's better to have something that catches the eye, he said. He held out a red spiral, waved it in my face, and put it back. Green is much better, he said. It doesn't stir up the urges quite as much. I told him, fine, yeah, whatever. A green plastic spiral binding, then. Let's go with that. Then he saw that they also had blue, a couple different shades of it, including one that BLT said looked too much like black, and one that looked too much like the tight Wrangler jeans that the women in the Faith Barn worship band wear, so that was quickly nixed, too. The man had real trouble making up his mind. Eventually, he settled on a bright orange spiral binding chosen because it matched the chorus books at church. Orange it is, he said. People will love it. Next, I needed some kind of cover. We went back into the office where the girl's girl was waiting. She seemed relieved when he returned. Let me see the covers, BLT said. There's no graphic designer on staff. Corny's had employed one about 10 years ago, but a headhunter over at Altfeld offered him $2 more an hour to work restoring floor patterns in all the local house barns. So instead of any custom design, Corny's offers a selection of pre-made covers. It's like choosing an ice cream cake. Most of the choices are schlocky inspirational designs with sunsets and beaches and lime green, green font. I thought they might clash with the orange spiral binding, so I choose a very, chose a very plain cover that had a black font and no beaches. Now all that was left was to provide a picture of myself and a short biography for the back cover, which BLT recited to the girl at the desk who wrote it all down on a pad like we were ordering a roast beef dip. Timothy B. Hepner is a Mennonite writer from Pretty Plain, Manitoba. He has extensive experience ghostwriting memoirs for aging citizens. He lives with his wife, Katie, in an unkempt bungalow with no pets and no children. Pretty Plain, City of the Future is his first publication. It was okay, though I thought perhaps the bungalow shouldn't be mentioned since we might not be living there much longer, but BLT said I had nothing to worry about in that regard. You're in the Lord's hand now, he says, he said, by which I think he meant his own. Yeah, thanks for that. Where did that story of Timothy come from? Is it something that has been sort of sitting in your mind for a while, or is it the experience of you growing up? Where did where did Timothy come from? You know, it's a combination of things. So part of it, yeah, is is me growing up in a small Mennonite town. There's that for sure is in there. But then there's a few, there's a couple other things. Um, the main character, Timothy, is a ghostwriter. And actually, years ago, about 10 years ago or more, I actually did some ghostwriting. I have a friend who uh, owns a ghostwriting business in New York. And I did some ghostwriting projects. And so that was part of the inspiration here. Of course, the ghostwriting that goes on in this 
book is mostly, uh, you know, people's family history books and genealogy books and small town things like that. So that was that was you know the inspiration for the ghostwriting part. But the inspiration for the preservation and history and stuff like that, you know, there's a lot of towns in 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 Canada and other places, you know, where we're losing our uh, grain elevators, we're losing our historic buildings, barns, you know, every drive, just drive around in, in, in rural uh, Canada and you'll see, you know, these barns on their last legs or things like that. And so over the past few years, uh, my wife and I have kind of gotten interested in that um, aspect and we kind of, well, actually during the pandemic, it's nothing else to do. So uh, drive around uh, rural roads and and just sort of look at what's what's there. And you know where I live here in in southern Manitoba, there aren't really a lot of historic buildings left. Um, mostly even Main Street, Steinbeck. You know we have a museum here in town that's a quite a well known Mennonite museum. That's where the historic buildings are. They've preserved some at the museum, but in town, there's very little um, historic buildings left. So that that you know, I just got an interest in that, and so that kind of found its way into the book as well too. So it's those things I think come from my own interests, and then they the story kind of formed from there. I I mean I find that very poignant as somebody who studied history and who works with museums in my day job that that balance between progress and tradition between the culture and Canadian culture generally. Um, I found that very difficult to find a balance between because I live in a major city. I like having high speed internet, you know, and these are the struggles that in some ways, Timothy and the preservation society are not fighting against, but, but are trying to save from taking over completely. That poignancy was, you know, you mentioned it's 80% comedy and 20% sort of more serious. What, how did you find that balance between that when that poignancy and that message is something that resonates so much around our society today? Yeah, you know, I think the comedy in the book probably comes from the characters, the quirks, what they're saying and so, so on. But I think whenever there were scenes where a historic building was coming down or something like that, or they were trying to preserve historic buildings. There's scenes like that too. Uh, I think I tried to avoid uh, getting any humor out of those particular aspects. You know, the demolition of the building, that scene, there's no jokes, at least no jokes about the actual destruction of the building. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it was kind of, the, the jokes are elsewhere. And, and, and like I say, in the characters, but so I wanted to keep, I didn't want people to find it funny that these buildings were coming down or whatever, you know? So those scenes, it's not funny, you know? So uh, it, it was a little bit of, a, it's sort of difficult balance to to achieve that, but um, it, it, you can get humor from people's flippancy towards, or, or people's lack of interest or whatever. And that's what satire is, right? I mean, you sort of exaggerate. And when you exaggerate, people notice and point out, okay, like, you know, all this guy's thinking about is getting on the next plane to, to BC, <laughs> to beautiful British Columbia. He's getting out of Manitoba, right? As everyone does, right? <laughs> but, uh, uh, but it's sort of funny in a way, you know, cause he's typical, too typical, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And then I, I also really like the part with Randall, his friend and fellow ghostwriter, who ends up moving to Siberia um, and to Russia, which I just thought was a, a pretty funny juxtaposition there. Yeah. There are a lot of Mennonite references in this. I mean, we've talked about that earlier with the Daily Bonnet. This isn't that different. There's a lot of callbacks to things more than just the town setting, to food, to life, to history, to the family experiences. Even the languages that you use, you throw in a lot of words in in the Mennonite language, as as we might call it, Plautich, um, which I'm sure I'm not saying correctly as not a good Mennonite boy. But is this really the Mennonite story? <laughs> uh, well, I tr- I mean, I, I guess I tried it. I, I, I attempted. I don't know if I there's a lot of good Mennonite books out there. Uh, I'm sure, you know, your listeners are probably familiar with Miriam Taves. Uh, Rudy Weeb, maybe Armin Weeb. Uh, there's a, a lot of uh, great Mennonite novels out there. Um, so I wouldn't say that this is like the quintessential Mennonite novel or something like that, but it definitely is chock full of Mennonite isms and, and stuff. And you know, the 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 low German words or the Plautdeutsch words, uh, I try to use them. You may look at the page and you might not know how to pronounce that word, but I tried to use them in context where it wouldn't matter like you could get what was going on even if you didn't understand um you didn't understand the word i didn't want to ha- constantly be translating uh because i find that a little bit clunky a little bit awkward so i just threw the words in there and in places where it wouldn't matter if 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 you understood that word exactly in fact some of them were new to me too you know i looked them up i looked up the word and put it in <laughs> do you do you speak it at all uh a little bit uh you know probably the most accurate answer would be to say no but i probably know more than you know just living in southern manitoba living in steinbach uh you know you're going to pick up some words here and there and so if people speak slowly then i can and in context i can usually get a pretty good idea what people are saying and i can say a few things here and there but i would not say i'm fluent or anywhere close to it mm-hmm. And I think that's actually kind of unfortunate. I wish I knew it, you know. That's part of the the story is the the culture is more than just the built heritage, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the characters in the book, I think they even talk about how they don't know the language and they mm-hmm. wish they did. So that's maybe a little, a little bit of autobiography in there. <laughs> is this the last we're going to see of Timothy? Is Timothy going to have a sequel to his history of Edenfeld? You know, I've thought about that. I do have another novel in the works that he's not those particular characters aren't involved so i would call it more like a thematic or maybe not it's not even the right word it's not even thematically thematic sequel but like you know uh i i don't think i'm gonna write a sequel but there'll be an another book um let's say in the same world mm-hmm. <laughs> if you want to call it that so yeah unless there's like a, a lot and people have asked me that is there going to be a sequel and so, so maybe if there's enough demand, I guess I have to write the sequel. But <laughs> right into Andrew Unger, right? In terms of people getting a hold of you or learning a little bit more about the work that you're doing, where is the best place for people to reach you? Yeah, so you can visit andrewunger.com for information about me or 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 my book. Um, I'm all. You can also look for Andrew Unger on 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 uh, Facebook and Twitter, and of course, the Daily Bonnet has. The website and on Facebook and on Twitter and Instagram as well too. So any of those places, you should be able to find me. Mm-hmm. 
I do like how you describe in your about section on your website that if you go back far enough, you are probably related to the person reading it. And I think that that is a little bit of the Mennonite uh, joke in there that we're all slightly related. It's definitely what happens to Timothy. Who knows whether we have the same common ancestor back in the Ukraine or in Prussia somewhere. Um, <laughs> nonetheless, it has been really interesting to talk with you about the Mennonite uh, experience the Mennonite story and your version of that through satire and through the novel Once Removed. Uh, thank you very much for talking with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. My thanks to Andrew Unger for talking with me about all things Mennonite, as well as his writing and his approach to satire. I really enjoyed my conversation with him and reading his novel Once Removed as a way to connect with and laugh alongside a part of my family story and my own identity. As Andrew mentioned, you can find his work at andrewunger.com, that's U-N-G-E-R, or at dailybonnet.com, and I've linked to those in the show notes. Now, I said off the top that this interview is going to wrap up season one, but I actually have one more special episode left which will drop on the one-year anniversary of the first lockdown restrictions coming into effect here in Alberta. The first COVID case here was reported on March 5th, but on March 17th, when total cases had already reached 97, the province declared a state of public health emergency. You know the rest of the story. It's been a year to remember since then, or a year to forget, I guess. At times, it feels like the longest year, and at times, I'm amazed that a full year has already passed. To commemorate? Acknowledge? I don't know. On the one-year anniversary of these restrictions, I'll release the season-ending bonus episode. I'm going to talk with someone from right here in Edmonton who spent a good chunk of this winter in Europe doing some pretty amazing things with large groups of other people. It's getting back to the podcast's roots, talking with cool people doing cool things, and I think the difference from our lives this year will be an interesting one for you to hear. So watch for that episode coming soon and find out who did what. But until then, thanks as always to Ron Yamauchi for the theme tune and to Anna Schroeder of Another Design for the cool podcast logo. Check out her work at ANNATHERdesign.com. Other music heard during this episode and all the other podcast stuff is done by me, Ben Fast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And as we count down the days of the final week of people experiencing first-time pandemic birthdays, and also as we're looking forward to increasing vaccine numbers, stay well and happy isolation reading.